לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. It's the first Parsha of the Book of Shmot, the Book of Names. Shmot starts out by saying, Ve'ele Shmot. These are the names of the children of Israel come down to Egypt and list their names. But without getting too, too morbid, Ve'yamot Yosef The Joseph dies, all his brother brothers die, and all that generation. So we are in a moment of real generational transition, there's no living memory of this previous generation, the family. So we are in a new world. We're in a new zone, which is so fascinating. And then it goes into this verse, which we have to parse out. Uvenei Yisrael paru v'yishretzu v'yirbu v'yatsmu b'mod me'od. Meaning, the children of Israel were fruitful, they swarmed, they were multiplied, they grew great, very, very much, and the earth filled with them. Okay, this is a great picture. And and Barry, I want you to uh, explore this with us, uh, explore the dynamics of this, the meaning of it, and, um, and take it into the direction that, that you want to. Okay, so the, the first thing to note is that this is a, a riff on the first commandment to humanity, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill up the land. The Israelites went one better because in addition to being Peru and Uruvu, there's Yishwitsu and Bayatsmu, Bimaod Maod. Rashi has this odd comment, it seems to me, because for each of these words of multiplication, Rashi says each pregnant Israelite had a child, so that every birth was sextuplets. And it would seem odd to us, I venture to say that Rashi may never have seen a set of sextuplets in his own life, let alone every birth being one, but I think it introduces an important theme of the book of Exodus, which is to see the world as filled with miracle and that the, you know, especially perhaps in our modern age, when we tend to rationalize everything, the Torah is taking us in a different direction, that it's trying to sensitize us to the idea that miracles abound in the world in which we live and we have to be aware of them and act on them and through them. So I think, I think Rashi is actually trying to solve a problem. And the problem is, is actually a, a very logical problem. The population of the Israelites is quite numerous. By the time we get to the book of Numbers, uh, we have a census of 600 and something thousand, uh, an estimated population, according to some, of over two and a half million. How do you get from 70, which is the number of the clan, 
to this exceedingly high number of two and a half million. The only way to explain it in the in the space of a short amount of time, meaning several generations, but not a dozen generations, is to say, wow, they were so profligate. They were so there was so much fecundity. There was there, were, <laughs> there was fertility. So that's one one thing I would say. So Rashi is is answering for a certain logical reason and also uh, can see the theological reason too. But I also detect in here a, a bit of a hint. The hint is the text is playing with us and it's saying, you know, this is the way they kind of see you. The Egyptians see you as a swarming, multiplying, almost verminous mass and the 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 narrator is doing a bit of a sleight of hand here in in tipping to this picture. Uh, Jeremy, you want to weigh in on this? No, oh, sure. I mean, I think that the uh, the the word yishritzu that that verb shenresh tzadik appears back in Genesis one. That's what the sea creatures do. There's so so many. I don't like imagine you know the schools of fish. There's so 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 many. But it's also the word sheretz, which is like a lizard or a creepy crawly thing. And so it, it is given the you know history of anti-Semitism in the world. It, it is totally like astonishing or, you know, uh, just very, very vivid that the Torah is playing with that word sheretz that the Egyptians saw us as vermin, as bugs. And and that sort of speaks to um, Pharaoh's. Pharaoh's anxiety. We got. We got to worry about these people. Um, there are too dang many of them, and we have to. We have to control them, lest they wait. What? Lest they leave. Lest they join our enemies and leave. We have to keep them, and we have to keep them here. We have to keep them subordinate, because there are too many of them. Interestingly, you you ha- you see this anxiety about slaves. Um, they don't want them to go away, and more slaves means more labor. As long as you can control them. But if they get too many, they might they might break their shackles. I want to call attention to um, another piece, and this also comes from Rashi, uh, and I, I think like the, the one about the sextuplets, it's, it's sources in the Midrash. There's a little wordplay going on. Pharaoh says, "Let's deal wisely with them. Pen your bed, lest they grow, lest they grow too numerous." And then the Torah goes two verses later. It says, "Kasher yanuoto." The more he abused them, kain your bed. The chain throats. This is verse chapter one, verse twelve. Uh, he Pharaoh said, "Pen your bet, lest they grow too much." But you know what? That happens. He repressed them, and Cain, not pen your bet, but Cain your bet. Most definitely, did they grow? So Pharaoh attempts to control, but the the life, and I think as Barry said very nicely, this there's just a, miraculously full of life is what's going on in Egypt. And the Israelites are full, full, full of life. That's the ultimate blessing in the Bible to be full of life. And Pharaoh cannot stop it. In fact, the more he presses down, the more the more the growth happens. Well, because Egypt is all about death and the cult of the dead and and the religion of the dead. And uh, I mean, it's 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 again, it's a great classic anti-Semitic trope, you know, to to say that they have their influence and their presence is not related to reality. They have in their minds an outsized impression of the actual population, Barry. So it's interesting, though, because Pharaoh actually responds to the verse and says, Rav Yatsu Mimenu. 
that they are great and mightier than we are. And he does not pick up the verbs Peru and Yishritsu. Indeed. And Yishritsu, as Jeremy pointed out, later in the Torah has a negative valence. But I think the only time it's used positively is in the fifth day of creation. But right. Peru always has a positive valence. So we have four words. What two of them are relatively neutral, perhaps, Rob and Natsum. One is negative and one is positive, and Pharaoh takes the neutral ones. Or relatively new benign ones to use to describe the people. So, so it may just it may be that Pharaoh's concern isn't necessarily anti-Semitism, certainly as we understand it today, but it, it's a political problem for him. And the book of Exodus is a very political book. But it's a psychological problem. It's you know, the Israelites are taking room in his mind, rent-free. They they are really plaguing him. And this is you know, we don't want to call it anti-Semitism, although I think it's it's an archetype. It's xenophobia. It's it's taking a look at the people that are foreign and, and seeing them as a terrible, terrible threat. And also, Yishritsu, you know, refers to the, the sea creatures. Jacob's blessing to Ephraim and Yidgu, and the word dog in there, it's they will swarm like fish, basically. So, I, right, I, but that goes back to the original bracha and brachid Indeed, indeed. Okay, so let's go to the. Before, before you just leave, I just want to, you know, here we are at a time, and and I, I, I think it's a bad idea. It's, it's almost always a bad idea to try to go from you know a biblical story to a modern to a modern specific you know policy problem, and that's it's like. It's tendentious. It's distorting. Um, you know, the Bible is not about you know what what kind of uh, immigration policy the United States or the European U Union should have, but it is just notable that we um, we do have massive immigration problems. We have you know huge refugee problems in the world. People moving around and people don't exactly you know they flee conflict. And they try to go someplace better, and those those wealthier countries don't know what to do with the people. You you have something quite like this, you know, in, in this story. Why do we come down to Egypt at all? Because we were starving to death up in Canaan. And you have the most powerful ruler of this massive, massive empire. And who's he worried about? The small people. Uh, who's he worried about? Like, like <laughs> they're, they're living rent-free in his mind. He's obsessed with not, not, you know, not the Babylonians. He's obsessed with these Canaanites. And he probably has a hugely distorted um, sense of, of exactly what's going on with those people. Right, which only tells you what kind of disease anti-Semitism is. It's a, it's a psychological disease. It's not based on any kind of real perception. And that leads to the edicts that he creates, which is the essentially genocidal edicts. He calls upon the miyaldot ha'ivriot, and we'll talk about that, the midwives, the Hebrews, asher shemachat shifra, one who's named shifra, and the second pua, and they are to kill the Hebrew children uh, upon the birth, the mid midwifery, the males, just to kill the males. The males, the the midwifery was was a profession among Egypt among women. Uh, the question that the commentaries or that we deal with and the commentators somewhat deal with is what is the ethnic origin of these particular women? We don't the the there's a, a little bit of ambiguity there and. Um, uh, we're I'm gonna we're inclined to 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 say that they're Egyptian. Go ahead, Barry. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that there's ambiguity. 
Um, the fact is, Shifra and Fuad never appear again by name in the Bible. So we have two characters who have names that we never hear from again. Okay, and but the scholars say that Shifra and Certainly, Fuad does not sound like a Hebrew name. And that's also problematic for people who recognize that there are other languages that make their way into Hebrew, just like every language that I'm familiar with, both of them, I guess. You know, we have foreign, we have a set of foreign words that become adopted by the, the host language, so to speak. So okay, much so. so that we, so I think that the other thing to recognize here is that the rabbis like a small cast of characters yeah. and they do not like, it's not so much ambiguity, they don't like anonymity. They'd rather take someone who appears once and give that person a name that we already know than to have someone remain anonymous because it doesn't seem to work well with the idea of a God who's pulling the strings of, of life on earth, right? When anonymous people show up and do something, it, all, it can seem to be almost anti-God. And so okay, they um, attach names to that. So I, I just wanted to say... Uh, a couple of things about this, you know, there's one significant grammatical, I mean, our, what we call the, the you know, Hebrew Bible, the, the Masara, the tradition of the Hebrew Bible, whose text is fixed in the early Middle Ages, you know, in Tiberia. It's clear. La mialdot ha ivriot, Pharaoh speaks to the Hebrew midwives. The, the pointing of that word makes it, it clear that, um, that, that it, it says that they are Jewish. But the Greek, is, not that I read Greek, but what I understand to be the case is that, that other witnesses, other textual you know, evidence in other versions points it as if the phrase is not la ta'ivriot, but ta'ivriot, which makes the midwives to the Hebrews. And that makes an awful lot more sense. Why in the world would Pharaoh have entrusted this genocidal plan and ask other Jews, okay, the Sander Commando had to kill, you know, people, but they weren't the main architects. They were the, the Jews who worked in the, in the content, in the uh, crematoria. They weren't the main people killing Jews in the Holocaust. Uh, mostly it was the Germans and the Ukrainians and the, uh, and the Lithuanians. Um, and they're so it just makes, it makes a hell of a lot more sense that the, that the, the midwives are themselves Egyptians who resist the genocidal uh, plan of the wicked Pharaoh, that makes all the sense in the world. It's a much more powerful story that way. And it, it, it summons to the mind, you know, the, 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 the idea, and this is, Nechama Leibowitz says this, that uh, morality, God-fearing morality, is, a, is a, a, a trait that belongs to all humanity. It's not, it's not specifically Jewish, it's universal. And, and we could point to other places in the Torah where the term Yireh Elohim appears. It appears when Abraham is uh, afraid that they're going to malign or be, you know, behave untowardly towards his wife. Uh, because oh, no, he's afraid he's going to be killed. Let's be clear. <laughs> be killed. Because in Yireh Elohim, there, there's nobody that's God-fearing. <laughs> Joseph, when he's pretending to be an Egyptian, says, Elohim, I'm and the the Amalekites, you know, when we say remember what they did, it's because they they were not God fearing. And each one of those is putatively in a uh, in a context of non Jews. So here it makes sense that this would be 
uh, non-Israelite, non-Hebrew people. And it, and it's a much more powerful story if the midwives are in fact Egyptian because they're doing something about, you know, for the sake of their humanity. But I also think we have to try and understand what they're being asked to do. And I, it seems in light of what comes later that what they're being asked to do is participate in an act that lends itself to more than one interpretation. As we often forget in the modern world, childbirth is one of the most dangerous times for both the mother and the child. And up until the 20th century, the numbers were Significant. We're not great for we're not great for survival. So I think by asking the midwives, I, I think the presentation piece is going to be that the baby boy died accidentally, not that they were murdered, because that provides cover for everyone. So, and yeah. so because and it points out points up I think two important things to remember: the next act of Pharaoh is going to be for all Egyptians to throw Israelite boys in the Nile, and you can't dress that up, right? You can't say, oh yes, a swimming lesson for the young Hebrew. That doesn't quite work. And so what he's done is he's gone from slavery and oppression to genocide in three easy steps, something that he was in total command of, right? They're his taskmasters that are gonna enforce the, the hard work. And now he's invited all of Egypt to participate in the grotesque barbaric act. And no. I think for me, what it points out is, you know, slavery cannot be dressed up and given a moral veneer, no matter who you are. And I think we do well in a country where slavery was a big part of our history to remember that. You know, it, it didn't take the modern times to say slavery was wrong. People knew what was wrong thousands of years ago. And what's wrong is that it's morally corrupting. It corrupts everything it touches. You know, it's interesting that you say this. First of all, it was very, you know, intensely you said that and very powerful. The, um, the cruelty of this institution in Egypt and the cruelty that is foisted upon the most vulnerable. We talked, as, before we started recording, we talked about Moshe's role as consistently coming up uh, and defending the most vulnerable. And that's what makes him suited for the leadership that is going to come. Um, and the image, Bar, of what, what you said about um, the, the, you know, the quote-unquote accidental smothering of a, of, a, of a newborn baby and a woman who's just undergone childbirth, even, even in the most, you know, wonderful uh, medical care of the modern West, it's still a, it's still quite a project and and leaves people you know uh, uh, it, it can leave people injured or bleeding and 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 risk for their own life and the thought that that the cruelty of this system is foisted upon the utterly defenseless just the Bible just hates that um, and and it's interesting that you say also about the the you know you can't dress up you can't put a moral veneer on slavery. I grew up thinking that the that the Exodus story is about you know the renunciation of slavery, and then you learn a little bit more about the history of the you learn more of the text and you learn more of the the history of Jewish interpretation, and you realize that actually Exodus is against Israelite slavery and against Egyptian slavery of the Israelites, and we do have to contend with the fact that there's two kinds of slavery still to come in in, in the book of Exodus, and some of them are 
uh, and the rest of the Torah. And some of them are uh, Hebrew slave, the Ebed Ivri, which I think is a beneficent, it is an indentured servitude where rich people take care of poor people among their fellow Jews. But then there's Ebed Kenani, the, 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 um, the, the non-Jewish slave, which the Bible does endorse as chattel slavery. And so this is just one of those unfinished revolution things. We're always a work in progress. And, and even the tradition, which I love and regard as holy, um, you know, sometimes actually does with speak with less than full condemnation of exploitative behavior. All right. Well, well speaking of, go ahead, Barry. No, I was of, the, of, the, of, you know, the, the compassion or, or the, the, I mean, the text moves in this direction. We, we learn of the birth of a child to the man from Levi, the man from the house of Levi and the woman from the house of, of Levi. By, by it was the man from uncle, as I recall. And his bat Levi, a Levite daughter. And we learned that she is pregnant during this time of, of the casting of the Israelite babies into baby boys into the Nile. She uh, put, hides him for three months and then puts him in a basket, uh, coats the basket with pitch and floats him on the Nile. And, um, and then we have a moment of compassion in the, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh who I mean, we could say as a theme that the story does move along because of women, uh, certainly. Uh, but here there is this, this, this extraordinary moment of compassion. Now, Barry, you were saying something before we were recording about, you know, it's, it's a great thing that uh, the devil can quote scripture, but they need to learn how to quote Talmud. You want to just explain, I mean, the fact that the, the baby is thrown into the Nile actually satisfies the Pharaoh's edict. <laughs> Right. So what was interesting to me is the last command of Pharaoh was to throw all the baby boys into the Nile. And in fact, mother, the mother of Moses, Zipporah, did just that. Not perhaps quite the way that the Pharaoh intended. She put him in the little ark, which recalls for us the salvation of the world in the Noah story in some similar language. And, you know, it also raises the question whether in fulfilling that act, literally of what Pharaoh said, throwing the baby into or sending the baby into the Nile, that it gives license for Pharaoh's daughter to save the baby because the edict has already been fulfilled. And it's a stunning reversal because, you know, we imagine Pharaoh is, as Jeremy said, the, this is the great empire of the time. And yet the chinks of his empire are within and they're within him, as we'll find out in the hardening of the heart, and in his household, his daughter, and ultimately will be in this whole country. Now, how do you how do you think? Uh, I mean, maybe you know, Bat Paro. She's like one of lots of young females in in the Pharaonic household. But if she's really his daughter, then presumably he knows she wasn't pregnant. <laughs> presumably he knows that. He knows the story, and you know one can't imagine Hitler saying to his to to somebody in his household, "Oh, I saved this Jew." Okay, but Pharaoh does appear to be okay with, and and that helps us think also about all the ambivalent and ambiguous 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 identity of Moshe. He's Hebrew. He's nursed by Yochebed. He has connections. He does go out to quote see his brothers. 
He cares about being one of those people, but he also, you know, grew up in Pharaoh's household and has some level of Egyptian identity as well. So I well, just think there's a lot of between the line stuff here that makes for a very interesting narrative. Well, that makes him the perfect character. He's differentiated from the Israelites and he's differentiated from the Egyptians, you know, and that's the key to to his effective leadership. He he can reflect them, but he's not totally of them until he is part of them. And that and that I think is um, demonstrated in the scene where he tries to, um, well, at first he sees an Egyptian, he goes out, and the, the text is really you know, beautiful here, where it says uh, in the space of a verse, um, in those days, he grows up, he goes out to his brothers, does he have knowledge that they are his brothers? Um, and what does that mean? He sees their suffering. He sees an Egyptian man hitting a Hebrew man. And then he looks this way and that way. He sees that there's no one there. And he smites the Egyptian. And then and he buries him. So that is out of justice, compassion, that is out of identification. That is out of the sense of you know protection. How would you understand? How do you teach that story or understand that story, Barry? What do you? Okay, before you get to that, I just oh. want to add something from before. Is that you know the curious thing? There are a number of curious features in the whole birth of Moses and growing up saga. The Torah never says he goes to Pharaoh's house. He's only identified as belonging to Bat Paro who gives him a name suggesting that his origin was not from her, right? I, Moshe, because I drew him from the water, lets everyone know, I think, that he is an adopted son. And she invites a Hebrew, who I'm sure she knows is the mother, because who else is going to be able to nurse, to nurse the child for three years? So that the ambivalence is really quite deep-seated as to who Moses belongs to. He's not quite a Hebrew, and he's not quite an Egyptian, but when he goes out, he sees his brothers, and I think we're invited to consider that everyone he sees at that point can be his brother, both Hebrew and Egyptian, because he is part of both of them, but he takes the side of the oppressed, and that's going to be his identification with the Hebrew people, because we never see in this story an Egyptian being oppressed. Okay. They're always on top. And so when it comes to this story, I love this story because I, I teach this story in a course on justice. And the question, of course, is does Moses do the right thing? And um, I used to be surprised. A number of my students think Moses should have been punished for what he did because he took the law into his own hands. Well, he does commit an act of manslaughter at the very least. Well, no, it's an act. Manslaughter is really dressing it up because most, certainly in the Torah and in the rabbinic tradition, self-defense is only defending the self. No, that's not right? true. The, the Rodef, the Rodef, you see the Rodef sees, I mean, sorry, the, the, the case of the Rodef, the pursuer, is that A sees B pursuing C and kills B to save C. So it is It is also to save not just the self-defense, it's to save the vulnerable. So Moshe could be described as executing Dean Rodef, the, the, the law of stopping the pursuer before committing a murder. 
I think I think the the punishment actually proves the case that it's manslaughter. It's not a punishment, but they want to kill him, and he has to run away, and that's exile. That's that's Irmiklat. That's the city of refuge. Yeah, and and the fact the fact that you know for exactly the reason that you said the manslaughter case um, is not you know uh, the the fact that somebody ends another human life is not necessarily murder. It, there may be any other you know, designation. It, it could be an accident or it could be um, justified, but there's still, some, there's still some price to be paid because you did end a human life. Now, maybe, maybe the Torah is here saying, Egypt is such a terrible society. Egypt is stoned by Amora and that Moshe in standing up against the exploitation and the abuse you know, commits a quote unquote crime in this unjust society. And so he knows that he has to run away. Right. But the, the, the image of he looks this way and that way and he sees that there's nobody. It, 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 it's just such a great passage because as you said, Elliot, he's, he's coming out, he's a, he's a kind of an Egyptian, he's kind of a Hebrew. He looks this way and that way. And on one level, that's just a description of He's looking this way and that way to see, am I going to get caught before I act? He looks this way and that way to see, maybe somebody else can help here. Do I have to be the one to help? He looks this way and that way to say, which side am I on? And all of those things are kind of resolved in his in his bold action. Okay, so so can we go but to Just the to push the point, Elliot, that you raise, why is Pharaoh entitled to kill Moses if we're talking about the Ir McLeod and manslaughter? Absolutely. It can only be because Pharaoh is a Goel Adam. He's a relative of the Absolutely. person who was killed. Uh, Pharaoh, every every Tasma, every Egyptian is a son or daughter to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh therefore is the Goel. He's the the the, the Avenger. Okay. But I, I want to add something here. So Jeremy corrected me on the Dino Dave. However, if I recall. Ramban, one of Jeremy's favorites, I know, says that the reason why Moses doesn't get into the promised land is because he killed the Egyptian. And I think if he would have understood it as a Dino Dave, he would not have come to that conclusion. Um, well, I, of course, don't speak for Ramban. I don't even speak for Jeremy. Half the time, <laughs> I don't even know I speak for myself either. But I think that, you know, it just suggests how intricate these stories really are. Okay, just good. That's really no, well, wait. Okay, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, what does it mean that he? The, how do you understand him then? That he gets up the next day and he's like, okay, you know, nothing happened. I goes the next day. and two two Israelites are fighting. Hebrews are fighting. And he says to the the evil one, the wrong one, the bad one, why are you hitting your your companion? So I mean, you know. Is he going out because he thinks he did a good? Does he not know that what he's done has been noted? I mean, how do you understand this moment? Well, he does seem to say that. Jeremy, go. go. He does seem to say that that he thinks he got away with it. But and he there was there was this abuse, and he thought that he could he could um, that, that what he did was unknown. But now he's he's gonna he's gonna have to pay for it. But you know. Um, I think it's interesting what Barry said about the students at the Schechter High School, you know, having a sense that, well, you know, he he did take the launchers on hands in a vigilante way. I mean, I, I would 
call it Din Rodef, but it could be, it could also be still, you know, we don't know that there was no other alternative. Um, a Din Rodef suggests that you should resort to, to lethal force if and only if all other possibilities have been exhausted. And we don't know that Moses maybe wasn't a little quick on the draw about that. Maybe he was a little bit more bloodthirsty than was necessary. But I, I do think that American Jews in the in the 21st century, you know, I, I, it's, it's just notable to me that uh, we, have, I'm glad how, how <coughs> resistant to violent explanations we are. I'm glad that we, um, you know, are, look self-critically at these things. I see this story as being, obviously it is located in Egypt, but I see a, a, a deep critique of Egypt as a place of massive injustice. Egypt is a place of warped laws. And, and Moshe, to me, is, is standing up against the violent, the exploitative. And this is what makes him a potential leader and will become an ultimately the leader. The, I mean, it, it's there's just so much... Uh to be said about this story, you know, is it possible that he thought he didn't kill him? Is it possible that he just... Well, he, he buried him in the sand. Well, you could bury him up to his neck. Uh, you're <laughs> suggesting he buried him in the weekday. Yeah, really. <laughs> he was going to go get him on Shabbos. No, I, I'm suggesting, you know, bury could mean, he, you know, he kept his head out, you know, he kept him warm. It was cold, maybe. I don't know. You know, uh, okay, so there, we, we, we're out of time, but we have, there were so many more, so much more in this Parsha, namely the burning bush episode where God uh, reveals himself to Moses at the first time. Uh, yeah, Sherry, yeah, is what God says. Just want to give us a little thought about the name that God uses there so that we can answer Carol's question. <laughs> so it defies logic. Uh, yeah, I share. Uh, yeah, I will be what I will be. I will be. What... I will be what I will be, or that I will be. Martin Buber has an elegant suggestion that God will appear however He appears; that He's not bound by a fixed form, as are human beings, perhaps, and gods in other religions who inhabit bodies as we understand them. But God shows up however the situation demands, and we, and because it's not a fixed form. We have to be attuned to God being there because the form itself will not let us know that it is God. Exactly. And I think it's a distillation of really a fundamental religious problem for people who believe and trust an invisible God. There must be some other way of knowing that God is present beyond our sense of sight. Jeremy, you want to? So I'm, I'm drawn to a lot of the the mystical traditions in Judaism in, in which I, I'll now just play a little bit with a, um, a metaphysical explanation. Yud hey vav hey and aleph hey yud hey um, are the same letters, more or less. The aleph is transmuted in, in, in the eheyet to a vav in, the, in, in, uh, in yud hey vav hey. And the mystical traditions um, are very like, I, I find this very profound that to say God is being, existence, eheyeh, I am, and even yud he vav he, I appreciate this is probably not the original, uh, probably not the original etymology. There's a, an alternative one, which is also quite lovely, that the Israeli scholar um, Yisrael Kanal has written about, 
that that yud hevav actually probably signifies loving. I am the passionately loving God, but the way the mystical tradition has read it is eheyeh and yud hevav he are um, expressions of existence. This is reality. This is what is. And what what is um, the the eheyeh is like a more profound, deeper cosmic uh, elaboration of the yud hevav he. And I find this, uh, you know, the, the letter Vav in Yudhe Vav transmuted into the Aleph. How do you make an Aleph? Well, down the middle is a Vav and a couple of Yuds on either side. And um, I, I just, I find that stirring. So I, 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 both of those are compelling interpretations and, and they require, I think, a, a tremendous leap of both mystical imagination and, and creative imagination. What about... You know, your average Israelite slave who who only wants a relationship. And and I'm very drawn to Harold Kushner's interpretation uh, that he bases on Rashi. He says, it just omits the word imach or imachem, and I will be with you as I will be with you. And that is a big theme in in Genesis um, because God is with every single major figure, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, also, and and I find you know that that's really that's what it's all about. You know, the twenty third Psalm is really the 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 summary of all religious experience. Gam Even though I walk in the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Kiata imadi, because you are with me. And and if if that's the case, then everything else is a, a function of that. And I think here at the at the at the core moment, um, really the, the the nucleus of Judaism, which is the burning bush here, you have a relational statement. I am with you as I will be with you. I am with them as I will be with them. I will be with you eternally. Uh, I mean, I, I don't need to to meditate much more than that. I love, you know, I love going into the mystical realms, but you know, I think of I think of people I know. A lot of a lot of plain spoken Jewish people who just want to know. Don't don't give me the the mysticism. Tell me what it's about. And it's like God's just <laughs> going to be with you. <laughs> That's awesome. Right, something for everybody you. in the Torah. I'm sorry. There's something for everybody in the Torah. It has to be. It has to work that way. We are out of time. Oh my God! We just got even started. We didn't make it through Parakemel, but it's been great being with you. We thank you for being with us. Thank you for your questions. Sorry we didn't get to all of them, uh, but we look forward to being with you on another edition of Parsha Talk. In the meantime, we'll see you next week on another edition of Parsha Talk.